Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is Matt Olborg. He's a data scientist and he's doing some fascinating work. Uh, but firstly, let me introduce the sponsors of the show. So this show is brought to you by Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. So if you're looking to buy or sell or trade Bitcoins, you've got to check out Kraken.com. They've got one of the most liquid exchanges. They're one of the longest standing exchanges. They're renowned for their focus on security with Kraken Security Labs. They've got Kraken Pro mobile app where you can buy and sell. Uh, and basically, it's, it's been designed with a beautiful interface. So check out that app. It's available both for iPhone and for Android. So go to Kraken.com to get that. Next up is CypherSafe. So CypherSafe create the product, the Cypher Wheel. So if you've got a Bitcoin hardware wallet or you've just got a seed that you want to protect, you know, those 12 or 24 words, you need to look into having one of these products. The reason being uh, you essentially want to make sure your product is fireproof, waterproof, pet proof, and tamper evident. And so the Cypher Wheel comes in a wheel shape and it protects the words of your seed and it's got two sides to it and you can get a padlock matching with it that helps basically helps you know if it's been uh, tampered with and so on uh, or know if it's been opened um, so that's something that you can uh, purchase as well that the website for that is cyphersafe.io they've also got a few little add-on bits and pieces as well so if you want you can buy some casino dice so that'll help you when you're rolling for entropy to add entropy to your seed as well so make sure you check them out next up is swan bitcoin now disclosure i hold some equity in swan bitcoin i have been helping the team out i advise on some of the different educational material that swan bitcoin are producing and if you're looking to buy bitcoin in the us and you want to do it automated to buy every week or every month with swan this is the place to do it i think there's a big psychological benefit to you as well where you don't need to manually buy bitcoin you can just connect your us bank account via ach uh, swan bitcoin will pull the Bitcoin, buy, pull, sorry, pull the fiat, buy Bitcoin, and then send it out into your wallet if you so choose, which is the obviously the recommended option, not your keys, not your coins, right? So the website for that is swanbitcoin.com. Now, lastly, Unchained Capital, Bitcoin Financial Services. So firstly, just go to unchained-capital.com. Check out their blog. They've got incredible material. There's a good uh, recent post by Dhruv Bansal uh, talking about the difficulty adjustment. So they've got some incredible material there on their website. Uh, and then if you're looking for ways to secure your Bitcoin, look at their vault program. They've got a two of three multi-signature vault program. So you can buy, say, one Trezor and one Ledger and set it up on the website. Uh, and it's all really easily done. Whereas if you're trying to do DIY multi-sig, that can be really technical and very difficult. You might make a mistake where Unchained Capital, they've got a team of professionals helping you do that. Also, Unchained Capital offer loans. So you can put up some Bitcoin and get USD liquidity. And then uh, basically without having to sell your Bitcoin, you can get some liquidity. So that's also an incredible benefit. So make sure you check them out. The website for that is unchained-capital.com. All right, so let me just bring in my guest now. Uh, Matt is a data scientist. He is doing some incredible work. I had to have a chat with him and uh, talk a little bit about what he's doing. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Awesome, man. So look, Matt, I've had a chance to look through some of your work. I've also listened to your interview with uh, Tales from the Crypt with Marty. So uh, that was also a great interview. Um, so perhaps if you, if you could just start with telling us a little bit about yourself, um, what, uh, the work you're doing as a data scientist. 
Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, as you said, I'm a data scientist. I, um, I have somewhat of a background in computer science. I got about halfway through a computer science degree. Um, uh, it wasn't, I felt it wasn't going fast enough for me. So I, I um, dropped out of the program and I decided to attend a data science three month boot camp in New York City. Um, it worked out really well for me. When I went into that boot camp, I, I actually brought in the local Bitcoins uh, data set and the Paxful data set. Um, those were my basic um, uh, experimental data sets that I was using from project to project in the in the boot camp. And um, so, yeah, I I became a data scientist because I was so interested in how Bitcoin was being used, and I wanted to learn how to. Um, jump into these data sets that I, I knew that were out there um, uh, and, and start to analyze them in, in a way that would begin to tell stories about about how they were actually being used. So, yeah. Great. And so how did you first come across some of these stories? Uh, yeah. So basically, uh, I've been watching local Bitcoins and Paxful for several years now. Um, they, they are very interesting uh, exchanges to me because the vast majority of their users come from countries uh, which generally speaking do not have um, a lot of um, uh, they tend to come from a certain class of countries which have particular socioeconomic problems and political problems and things of that nature they they generally don't um, have uh, standard banking connections to crypto exchanges in these countries. Uh, so in the United States, for example, Coinbase is allowed to directly connect to your bank account. Um, but in these in the other countries, they don't uh, necessarily allow those connections all the time. Um, so uh, yes, I, I was very interested in these, in these data sets that I've been following them for some time. Um, to me, they, they represent um, the ultimate test or the best test of, of the value proposition of Bitcoin. And um, a lot of people marketing for Bitcoin um, try to say that it's going to bank the unbanked and it's going to help the little guy. And um, when you look at the data on these exchanges, um, that it, it will actually tell you if that, if that is actually taking place or not. Um, so yeah, um, in addition to the data, uh, on the exchanges. I also talk to the traders themselves. So if you go to these websites, uh, you can see the advertisements to trade in different currencies and countries around the world. And um, in the inside of these advertisements, the uh, publisher of the advertisement oftentimes puts their phone number in, in the ad. And um, so I began kind of texting and opening up communications with these various traders um, and asking them what people were buying and selling Bitcoin for in those countries. Um, and when I started doing that, I started getting some really amazing, um, you know, gold mines of, of information uh, from people where um, just the, the Western world or crypto Twitter, or whatever you want to call it, they just really had no idea that this stuff was even happening. And so, yeah. Uh, can you... Can you give us some indication on the size of this in the developing world? Do you have any kind of rough figures that you could that you could give? Sure. So um, I think so. In terms of volume, like I said, I mostly watch local bitcoins and Paxful. And in two thousand and uh, in two thousand and nineteen, 
I believe pack, uh, local Bitcoins did approximately $3 billion worth of Bitcoin trading. Um, and I think Paxful was at about a little over $1 billion. Um, I think Paxful now has about 3.5 million users. And local Bitcoins, I'm not sure the exact number, but I believe it's a little bit more than Paxful. Maybe, uh, maybe significantly more than Paxful, but it's in the, I, I would think, less than 10 million. So... Awesome. And so I think these stories are really interesting because it sounds to me like in the Western world, in the developing, in the developed world, it's sort of, so the message might be seen more like, oh, it's all about hodling and people are speculating on future adoption uh, and they're not necessarily using it for day-to-day commerce or any sort of uh, some of this kind of voucher get-arounds, whereas that is a different story in the developing world, correct? Yes, absolutely. So one of the uh, largest points that I um, have tried to lay out in, in my articles is the fact that Bitcoin in the developing world, um, there is, of course, a, a percentage or a segment of that um, that is related to speculation. But um, from what I found talking to traders, uh, the chief use case of Bitcoin in these countries is um, it is utility use. It's people who use Bitcoin because uh, the traditional financial system or traditional payment rails or the traditional banking system is not serving them. Um, and so that that is oftentimes a result of um, uh, just lack of modernization of current financial infrastructures, but in other times it, it is a result of explicit um, financial oppression where um, laws are set in place just to restrict the financial freedom of, of uh, the uh, citizens of these countries. And so they're turning to Bitcoin to get around these laws. Essentially, I mean, to be very frank, they are oftentimes breaking the law of their own country. Um, in the pursuit of of um, being their own individual and 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 uh, you know being in control of their own economic destiny. So, yeah. And as I read the articles, I see <laughs> probably two main stories. Uh, one is this kind of diaspora story, where let's say people have left a country and they want to work overseas and they want to send money back home. And then it's about, okay, how do I use Bitcoin to achieve that? And then the other story is sort of <coughs> like the using, let's say, gift cards and vouchers sort of story. So would you say that's kind of like a good summary then of at least some of the stories that you have been researching? Uh, yes. Yeah. So I would say the gift cards um, are possibly also a part of the remittance story. That is gift cards can be used for remittance. Um, but uh, it, it's a combination of, um, I would say the two primary use cases uh, happening in these developing countries is number one, um, using Bitcoin to transfer value into a country. Um, and that is where uh, people, this diaspora, these migrants who have, for example, left Venezuela, um, because the traditional system is, is not serving their needs, they are using Bitcoin to transfer value uh, into Venezuela, uh, and then their families are selling those Bitcoins for uh, actual local currency there. And the second uh, use case that I see is, is capital flight, and that is moving value out of a country or beyond the reach of the local government. Um, 
And these things are happening. Um, there are many different flavors of moving value into a country and moving value out of the country, many different reasons for that. But those are the two primary um, threads that, that I've noticed. Yeah. Okay. So look, let me, um, uh, just for the audio listeners, I'm just going to put up on screen share right now. So if you go to usefultulips.org, which is Matt's website, you can see some of the different uh, articles. So I think it might be uh, interesting as well, just to kind of talk through how you um, you figured out that it, it sort of, it ebbs and flows with uh, with what's going on in Venezuela. So can you tell us a little bit about about that aspect of it, Matt? Sure. Yeah. So the recent article I wrote on the situation in Venezuela, um, I, I looked at uh, these very wide sweeping blackouts, which occurred in March of 2019. They also had another massive blackout in late July. The one I focused on uh, uh, was in March because I felt like it caught the country most by surprise, and it would uh, the event in March exposed um, activity uh, to the greatest degree. So, um, essentially, what happened is is the entire, almost the entire country of Venezuela lost power for several days at a time. Um, they have a single hydroelectric dam which feeds the majority of the country's power, and there was a uh, malfunction related to that dam, and it caused a, a nationwide blackout. Um, during that time, um, I look. I was looking at local Bitcoin's data, um, and I noticed that, uh, of course, you you would see a uh, a drop in transactions uh, during that time. Um, yeah, if, if we are guiding the uh, viewers to the article here, I would say um, if you scroll down to the um, one more, yeah. So that final one there. Uh, uh, yeah, so go up one chart. I'm sorry. So right here, I'll, I'll explain this chart here. So um, <clears throat> the uh, the y-axis is uh, the number of uh, transactions per hour. Uh, the red hashed line uh, represents the number of local Bitcoins transactions that occur uh, in Venezuelan boulevards in a given hour uh, during a normal week. Um, so the red hash line, it shows peaks during, you know, midday when business is strongest and then valleys during the nighttime. Um, and you can see uh, on the right of the chart on Saturday and Sunday, the average number of hourly transactions drops. And that makes sense because that's, you know, businesses are closed, people are going to church, et cetera. Um, the blue line uh, shows, so, so the red line represents the average. Uh, it was, I believe, the 16-week uh, average of previous transactions. And the blue line represents the number of transactions that actually happened during that week. Um, so, <clears throat> and uh, the, the yellow line represents uh, the power outage. And I got this data layer from a website which um, shows uh, the, there, there's a organization called netblocks.org. It uh, actively tracks internet connectivity and freedom in various countries around the world. And so they were monitoring the situation in Venezuela, and uh, you can see that the yellow line is uh, quite high with about 500,000 active connections during the week, and then all of a sudden it drops down to almost zero, and that is uh, the moment that the blackout started. Um, you can also see at the same exact time the number of transactions on local Bitcoins drops. Um, on Friday, there were uh, you know, about 10% of the transactions that there normally were. 
on Saturday, uh, vastly lower as well. And this all makes sense because when the, when the power is out, of course, you're going to see a drop in transactions. Um, what I found out was that um, I looked at these other Latin American currencies during that time, and they also had big drop-offs in number of hourly transactions during the time of the blackout in Venezuela. Um, so yeah, if you scroll down, you can see all the other uh, currencies. So this is the Colombian peso. You can see the Friday and Saturday are well below number of transactions that they would normally have. And um, this took place in all of these uh, Latin American currencies as well as the US dollar transactions. And so uh, on a very uh, broad level, what this meant is that uh, these other countries were related to the situation in Venezuela somehow. Um, but more specifically, what I learned in doing the interviews and um, uh, with the actual traders on this platform is that um, these drops in transactions were related to remittance, which was taking place from uh, these other countries. Um, they are full of uh, Venezuela diaspora. About 10% of the country has fled to these other places over the last uh, five years-ish. Um, and so what they're doing is they're fleeing to these countries. They're earning currency in these other new countries. Um, they are then uh, taking their uh, new country currency. They're going to local Bitcoins where they find an advertisement um, where somebody uh, in their new country is willing to purchase um, or is willing to sell Bitcoin that they already have for the uh, new country currency that that person has, has obtained. So Colombian pesos, for example, if I were a Venezuelan working in Colombia, I would earn uh, an amount of pesos. I would go to local Bitcoins. I would find somebody in Colombia selling Bitcoin and who wanted my pesos. I would do that transaction. So then I give them my pesos. I acquire Bitcoin. At that point, I would have uh, Bitcoin in my local Bitcoin's wallet. Um, but that's not the end goal of the remittance process. So the second thing I would do is I would go and I would uh, sell that Bitcoin for Venezuelan boulevards. So I would enter into a second trade where I found somebody inside of Venezuela who did have Venezuelan boulevards in their bank account. And they were willing to send boulevards in their bank account to my family member's Venezuelan bank account as long as I gave them Bitcoin. And so when I did the second transaction, uh, that that essentially completes the remittance process. And so that is the reason why um, during the blackout, you saw these uh, dip in transactions across all Latin American currencies. It's because that remittance flow that is normally there is now gone. Um, and so that's the conclusion that I came to. Awesome. And so it's also interesting that... Um... You, you kind of need this middleman layer because in order to do that, you need the traders who are there uh, operating as that sort of go-between because the average worker is not necessarily going to have the time to go do all the trading themselves, so they would go to a middleman trader who's helping them yep. get it to the other side. And also, um, well, I guess, first of all, in some of your interviews with these individuals, I presume you were figuring out from them, okay, this is the story, this is how you do it. Were any of them reluctant to give up that information? Was that considered like competitive market information that they didn't want to give you? Or was that seen as like, well, anyone can compete in this market? No, it was definitely, um, in some cases, 
they do protect that information. They, first of all, what they're doing, depending on their level of connectivity to Venezuela, um, their activity um, could get them into trouble. Uh, they are they are perpetuating or executing informal money transmitter transmission, and that is you know against the law. Um, so they're a little reluctant from that standpoint. But yes, in addition, they're also reluctant to tell you about everything about their business because uh, that's how they make their money. These people, um, for the most part, like you said, it is a specialized job to uh, kind of trade on local Bitcoins and normal people, generally speaking, normal people are not uh, the ones executing the trades. It does go through middlemen on local Bitcoins. Um, so yeah, that is their their uh, their livelihood. And from what I heard, you can, by Venezuelan standards, you can make a, a very decent living um, if you are an informal money transmitter on these platforms. Yeah. And another thing that I find very interesting is it's cheaper for somebody to cross two foreign currency spreads than to use the traditional payment rails of, say, Western Union and PayPal and so on. Now, in some cases, it may be because of bureaucracy and regulation, and in others, it may just be due to fees. Yeah. So, I mean, those are all kind of one and the same. Um, I think part of it is the monopolistic effect that a lot of these remittance companies have. Um, it, it's also the fact that uh, traditionally they didn't really have any other option. You know, um, if you wanted to move money back to your home country, you had to deal with these uh, companies. And, and, and even these companies, they, if they are brick and mortar establishments inside of the, the country you're sending money to, they have to abide by the laws of the local country that they're in. Otherwise, they'll be sent out of business. And so they have to honor whatever exchange rate um, Venezuela says is the official rate. And, and oftentimes um, the Venezuelan government tries to um, uh, say that their con currency is stronger than it actually is because it helps them in various other uh, matters of trade. And um, so, yes, the, the, the end result is that um, Bitcoin remittance is more uh, efficient and it saves you more money than traditional uh, methods. And, and that is uh, something that is dynamic. Um, the, it changes all the time. I think with Venezuela, it's been consistently the best method by far for several years now. But in many other countries that I see this happening, it tends to be uh, a function of what the price that Bitcoin trades at in these various uh, economies, um, and that can change on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. So, um, yeah. I also find it really interesting that, as you mentioned, it's sort of dynamic based on whether the government is more restrictive or less restrictive at that time. And essentially, governments can increase or decrease their level of capital controls, their level of currency controls, their fix of the what the currency is pegged at or uh, any, any of these different factors. And then the, the traders on the ground have to react to that, right? Because they have to adapt to that because maybe it's not that Bitcoin is more efficient in all times at all places, obviously. There will be times where maybe it makes more sense for them to use the traditional uh, fiat payment rails, correct? Absolutely. And, and not only that, but they, they also use uh, bank accounts in different countries to move money and Hawala networks and things of that nature. So there are many different like tools in their tool chest 
And as, as I explained, it is a dynamic situation where they do evaluate on a day-to-day basis, what is the best way that I can move money across the border? Yep. Right. So I guess if I were to try and characterize it, then if you are playing the role of one of these traders, it's almost like you need to have access to a range of different options. And then on the day, basically, in like sort of be clever and pick out which one is most efficient or cheapest in uh, based on the conditions at the time, rather than just like being a one track mind of oh, I only do Bitcoin trading, right? That's exactly right. Uh, and that's why it's a skill. And that's why it's also um, it, it also falls to people who generally do have uh, bank accounts in several different jurisdictions. So that kind of limits this role to uh, somebody who maybe is a little bit more well-traveled or they have family already existing outside of the country. They can leverage those outside accounts. You, it, you can't just be a, you know, a poor person in Venezuela with very little outside connection um, and teach yourself to do this. You kind of have to, uh, you have to have those um, privileges already in place in a lot of cases from what I've found. Yeah. And is there any particular, let's say, typical profile? Are these people who are, let's say, students and they do it on the side of their study or maybe they work part time and then they do Bitcoin trading and this kind of foreign moving, foreign money moving around aspect on the side of their main job? Is that like a typical profile for them? I've seen the student case several times. Um, I, I saw it in Zimbabwe where it was a, a person of Zimbabwe and they were studying in South Africa and that gave them the ability to uh, have these multiple accounts. And there is a lot of remittance that goes from South Africa to Zimbabwe. Um, And so, uh, yes, um, I think a lot of the times in the case of Venezuela, these traders oftentimes are, um, you know, they, they were unemployed and desperate at some point because of their economic situation. And they kind of uh, learned the ropes of this informal trade just uh, kind of on the fly over the years. And, and it, it developed into a full-time job, I believe, uh, as well. Um, so, yes, I, I think that uh, now it is local Bitcoins, generally speaking, like the majority would be full-time professional trader types. Um, but yes, they, they probably do start on a part-time basis at the beginning. Uh, maybe they start doing it because they themselves need to do it. They want to send money home and they found this cool way to do it. And now they're like the, the nexus for their whole community and wherever they live. Um, so yeah, that's basically how it, how it evolves and works. Yep. That's really fascinating stuff. And so I'm also curious with some of these platforms, Generally, the platform, say local bitcoins or Paxful, will want people to keep their trades on the platform. But I've heard colloquially a practice is that people try to, once they've established a relationship with somebody, they try to take that relationship off the platform because they want, might want to do it without paying the fee to that platform. But then on the other hand, there is also the reputation aspect and the market making aspect of these uh, online platforms. What's been your experience in your discussions and just from your research? Yeah, so that that uh, scenario does play out all the time. Um, I've met people who they're they were basically you could say local bitcoins kingpins at one point, where they controlled um, you know like a big chunk of the entire liquidity in a in a given country, and this was years ago. And then um, 
when I, I'm thinking of a particular trader I met in Mexico um, where he, he, he was responsible for maybe the majority of the volume for Mexican pesos on local Bitcoins for a couple of years. And over time, he, he completely transitioned off of local Bitcoins and he has his clientele of people who move money and known in the community as a uh, money exchanger. And so he doesn't, he's not even on local Bitcoins anymore. Um, I, I think on local, on these platforms, there is a fee of trading. Uh, so there is an incentive to leave the platform right then and there. Uh, in addition to that, um, you know, you increase your privacy if you leave the platform. Um, but I still think a lot of these traders like to be on the platforms because of the nice advertisement for them. And um, they'll do trade on or on or off the platform. Um, and it just depends on the on the preference of the, the clientele that's coming to them. And usually the way it happens is, is um, the client will do the first trade or two or three on the exchange. And then once they've formed a relationship, they will move off to like a WhatsApp group or a Telegram group or something like that. Um, and uh, the, these traders live off of their reputation. So they're, they're known by people and the social fabric of these communities, it, it's always like, can you, can you vouch for me? Oh yes, I can vouch for this guy because my cousin knows him personally or, or something like that. It always works out with some sort of personal relationship um, where you can, you can kind of trust that connection. That's fascinating. And I think it might be an interesting hypothesis then that really what you see on local Bitcoins or Paxful is actually, it could be underplaying the actual amount of volume going through because people are taking their trade volume off the platform. For sure. Yeah, that's absolutely. I think um, these volumes on, on these exchanges, even though they are trading billions of dollars a year, I still think it's probably... Um, a, a slice of the total peer-to-peer -peer trading that's taking place. And, and the bigger the trade gets, the more likely it is to go off exchange as well. Um, so the big, big time trades, you know, the, the average trade size on local Bitcoins in many of these economies is anywhere between 20 and $80. Sometimes it's a couple of hundred dollars. But um, from what I've heard about people who run these, their admins of these WhatsApp groups, they say it's like, fairly common for, you know, 10 Bitcoin trades to take place or to be advertised on these WhatsApp groups uh, um, where, you know, somebody will come in and say, Hey, I need to, I need to offload 10 Bitcoins who can, who can meet me, you know? So uh, yeah, I think it's a sliver or a slice of what's actually taking place. Right. And um, I've also seen some different dynamics around things like, well, let's call them gray markets or whatever, but uh, people who, are doing say you know those essay writing um things in say kenya uh where mm -hmm. let's say uh students in the western world and you know whether they're in the uk or australia or america and they're well they want somebody else to write their essay for them and then there are all these students in kenya who want money and uh paypal uh will not allow that kind of payment through the platform and so their people are moving into using Bitcoin to do that kind of example. Um, so that's another sort of interesting story as well. I, I presume you would have come across that in your research also. Yeah. And uh, this spectrum of, uh, you know, moral, moral questioning or, you know, moral gray area, uh, it is a huge spectrum. And some of these use cases I can kind of understand and 
maybe get behind in a certain sense. And then other use cases are like pretty unquestionably immoral. <laughs> and uh, um, those are also being executed on these platforms as well. Um, so, you know, th things like um, stealing somebody's credit card information and then uh, you, you buy gift cards with the, with that credit card and then you sell those gift cards immediately for Bitcoin. You know, that is very broadly a, an immoral thing that should be punished and not, not be able. And those things happen on these exchanges and um, things like scams where, um, you know, uh, cybercrime where, where people um, trick other people to send money or they think they're getting a good or service or product or things like that. Um, uh, it's happened to my sister's company a couple weeks ago where, you know, they were right in the middle of the COVID epidemic. And uh, one of her coworkers got like this random text message uh, and it, it was supposedly from the boss and the boss requested that the uh, coworker immediately go to Target and buy some gift cards for clients. And uh, what ended up happening is she bought $2,000 worth of gift cards. Um, she thought it was, she thought she was giving the codes away to her boss. Um, and it all happened so fast that she didn't realize it was a big scam and, and the scammers made off with $2,000. Um, so that type of stuff is obviously undesirable. And, um, you know, you have to admit that, that that type of stuff is also happening. It's not all good. Sure. And I think we've got to be uh, honest about these things, right? Like, yeah, that people can use it for bad things. Um, I think it, it it's, it's one of those things where people can overplay it or underplay it, right? So some people might overplay the factor and say, oh, look, everyone in the developing world is using Bitcoin. And that's, that's not quite true, right? Like it's really more like in these certain circumstances, it makes sense for people to use Bitcoin. And in others, maybe it doesn't make sense for them, right? And uh, I think this, is, this also ties into how it's easy to criticize some of the legacy financial institutions, but really the, the reason for those high fees or delays is because they're facing a lot of regulatory burden or well, main, that's probably the main one, um, but they also face fraud and chargebacks and so on. And so they're building in the cost for dealing with the fraud and the chargebacks and all these other things into their cost. And that's why if you look at some of the legacy uh, financial institutions, they have quite high fees relative to just the straight Bitcoin transaction cost. But that's not the only transaction cost, right? Absolutely. Broadly considered. That is, uh, that's a huge, huge factor at play. And um, it's interesting. I, I um, got to know an older gentleman who's, uh, you know, done his time on Wall Street and he really understands Wall Street to a large degree. And behind every single like arcane law that is out of place in today's world, those laws came about because the system broke at a certain time where, uh, you know, um, the the system collapsed or some some scammer type Wall Street person got away with something. And so they put this law into place. And now there's just millions of laws on top of each other. But generally speaking, they were put into place for uh, the right reasons. And but now it's just they, they do tend to cause a lot of bureaucratic friction. And um, so there there should be a happy medium between, you know, um, uh, making way for these new financial technologies, but also trying to, uh, you know, um, make sure that the payment system is robust and uh, has guarantees and protects people.
Right. Um, also, the question around stable coins. So, hypothetically, uh, somebody could say, "Hey, why don't you use? Why don't they just use Tether? Why don't they just use one of these other GUSD or one of, whatever stable coin?" Is it a question of education, or is it a question of access, uh, or is it just like a mindshare thing? People don't know about it. Uh, I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, I think it is true that. In a lot of these markets, Bitcoin already has the liquidity, uh, the order book depth, and people already are familiar with Bitcoin. So um, if you're using Bitcoin, um, uh, there's really not a need to use Tether because even in the case that they're not holding on to the Bitcoin, for example, if I were doing capital flight out of Venezuela, I was converting my bolivars into US dollars. People are already doing that on local Bitcoins where they trade away their bolivars for Bitcoin, and then they sell their Bitcoin for PayPal dollars, or they sell their Bitcoin for Zelle dollars. And there's a million different online wallets that they can hold dollars in. And those are essentially de facto stable coins as well. So is Tether bringing something to the table that is better than the current system that is in place? I'm not saying it is or isn't. I think there's a lot of great things about, uh, you know, the way that you can build smart contracts around stable coins and, and uh, the way where you can reduce uh, custodial risk, reduce counterparty risk uh, in some cases with stable coins. Those are definitely compelling features. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I, so it's a partially mind share, partially, uh, you know, I always say that in order for a new technology to start gaining network effects, or in order for a new technology to overcome the incumbent network effects of the incumbent system, it has to be a paradigm shift better. And is Tether a paradigm shift better than the way that people are already acquiring these dollars? I'm not sure it is or isn't. Uh, that's something that's playing out right now. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and um, the other factor is obviously number go up. Right now, you and I in the Western world, right, in Australia, US, UK, Canada, etc. Many of us buy Bitcoin and we believe it is going up in value and that's why we want to hold it. Now, that may not necessarily be true in the developing world where, let's say, you're living more hand-to-mouth. You don't have the potential to save in Bitcoin. To what extent were you seeing maybe some of these traders once they start interacting with Bitcoin, they actually want to start hodling Bitcoin too. Did you see that as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say I can't think of a single case where that didn't happen, where once somebody became familiar with the technology, they were enamored by the, the cool factor of it and the niftiness of it and the way that, you know, uh, it enabled them to do things that they never, they were not able to do before. And, and, these people in, in highly restrictive economic environments, they understand the value proposition of Bitcoin better than anyone in the world because they, they were born into these uh, broken, dysfunctional monetary systems. And so they understand the value of permissionlessness um, and, and the value of uh, fiscal discipline and, and monetary discipline and things of that nature. They understand all of, you don't have to explain that to them at all. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I would say that in many cases, when I talk to these traders, they really have nothing to gain by talking to me, by revealing this information. The only thing I think in many of the cases that they do talk to me, the only reason they talk to me is because they have this shared love of this cool Bitcoin thing. 
and they want to share the they want to share their story with the world. They want to say like, wow, I could tell my story to this guy who is going to write an article, and he could tell the world about these cool things that I'm doing with Bitcoin. So, right, and I guess the other question I have is. Obviously, those people who are directly interacting with Bitcoin regularly, they see the value and they want to hold Bitcoin eventually, right? Now, obviously, it might be more difficult for them if you're, if you're not earning as much, you can't save as much, obviously. Uh, but is it also that their counterparties are also getting into the idea of hodling as well, like not just using it as a payment rail? Yeah, I think so. I don't have um, a direct story about that, um, but I'm sure it is happening because it seems to happen with, you know, er, most everybody who comes into contact with Bitcoin, it, there is an, a novelty about it. There's something interesting about it. Um, I will also say though, that there's a big chunk of people who in these countries who um, they got burned by Bitcoin once before where they, they bought, they bought, they thought it was going to go to the moon and, and then it crashed or they bought Bitcoin and then they threw it into a Ponzi scheme and they got burned that way. Or even if it didn't directly happen to them, Everybody knows somebody who lost money on some sort of scam or, you know, something like that. So that definitely turns away a lot of people. Yeah. The other question I had was around lightning use. So obviously lightning is very early and I have seen some stories where individuals are using it. So uh, there is that um, Satoshi Beach, I forgot, or I forgot, I forgot the exact name, but Essentially, um, there was a group where uh, where entire towns were just using Wallet of Satoshi, a custodial Lightning wallet. Have you seen anything like that, or is it mostly on-chain usage? Yeah, so I know uh, I haven't heard of that specific case. Uh, usually, when I hear a story about an entire town, you know, transacting in Bitcoin, like I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, but that's not to say that maybe it doesn't hasn't happened to a certain degree in a couple of little towns. Um, uh, however, uh, aside from that, I, I have seen a couple companies. And in fact, I've uh, been talking very closely with a particular company recently who does use Lightning and, and um, they serve developing country users with Lightning infrastructure. And um, it, it is, I think it it represents, it addresses a lot of the weaknesses of Bitcoin in that you can instantly transfer and that's a huge deal. Um, and uh, the fees are incredibly low and that's an even bigger deal because on-chain transfers um, are very expensive for people in developing countries who, like I said, they're moving sometimes five, $6 worth of money. They don't have the money to pay, you know, 50 cents for a blockchain fee. Um, so. I think Lightning is uh, potentially a perfect fit for a lot of these use cases, and um, yeah, so I, I'm 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 hopeful that it will develop into something more and soon. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to honestly work on on something myself right now that that kind of involves that. So, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, and I think. It's one of those things where potentially older phones may not be able to use some of the newer Lightning wallets. Um, but I think a good example might be something like Phoenix for Android, where it is a non-custodial wallet, but the experience is almost like a custodial wallet. Or another one might be Wallet of Satoshi or Blue Wallet or uh, Breeze Wallet is another one as well. So I guess these, these are examples, but again, it takes time for people to get familiar with it and start to really build up their usage of it. 
Yeah. And the, the smart companies, um, they are building uh, their apps to be backwards compatible um, with these older versions because they know that that's a part of the territory that they're working in. Um, you know, I, I've seen several, you know, Silicon Valley type companies where they, they build a shiny new app that's only um, working on the last three versions of Android or whatever. But the smart companies are already taking that into consideration and, and their apps are running um, on, you know, 2012 Android software. So, yeah, that's good to see. Uh, another area I was keen to talk about is KYC versus non-KYC. So I know that local Bitcoins and Paxful do have KYC, uh, but there are other platforms that don't necessarily use KYC. So things like BISC or HODL HODL, let's say, although maybe the volume on those in these countries is not as high. What's been your experience on the KYC question? Yeah, so... Um... Generally speaking, when these uh, these non KYC exchanges, it's it's interesting to see that they generally are also more decentralized and they have less custodian. And there's a reason for that, and it's because they wouldn't get away with not doing KYC unless they were decentralized. Um, if they had a centralized company somewhere and they were not doing KYC, they would be in jail. Um, and so. The drawback of a lot of these non-KYC uh, exchanges is that they have to uh, make the architecture of these applications such that they are non-custodial. They're, generally speaking, mostly on-chain transfers like BISC. And so that it's very hard to make a user-friendly experience around uh, all of these technical uh, features that you have to have to maintain decentralization. So. Um, it, it is very tough uh, to do. And, um, you know, what I've seen with, with BISC and, and I like the BISC team and I think they're, they're, you know, doing great work, but BISC, in, in my opinion, it, it's kind of like, um, it's a P2P exchange designed for like a nuclear winner, you know, but we're not in a nuclear winner right now. We're just kind of in like this uh, mildly, um, very mildly, a restrictive environment where people can still use custodial wallets and get away with it. Like, for example, as long as you, if you're using a custodial wallet where your money is custodied in another country, that's not your own country, that's just fine for a lot of people. When, when, when Venezuelans hold their money in PayPal, they have no problem with it because the U S government doesn't have any problem with, with what they're doing. It's the Venezuelan government that they care about. So, um, yeah, and, and um, in terms of the, the, I think KYC AML is going to continue to increase and, and uh, not, only, uh, not only on the front end where you have to ask this of users before they even do the first trade, which um, it's possible that we could head in that direction, which would be awful, um, but they have to do things on the back end to meet uh, these regulatory agencies' requirements. They have to have they have to set up all this infrastructure to communicate with the banking system about the identity of the traders on their platform and all that other crazy stuff. Um, so I think that's probably only going to strengthen because the banks will love to make the Bitcoin experience more inefficient. Um, and so. Yeah, I, I I personally feel like this 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 will be another beautiful test of Bitcoin. Is it truly decentralized enough to avoid a lot of these issues? 
Um, we're going to find out. Right. And I think it's it's also fair to point out, and I think Ray Youssef, the CEO of Paxful, has spoken about KYC. And I think his view is something like it, it helps essentially Paxful obviously not get shut down. And ultimately, that enables the company Paxful to serve many more people. And so we have to consider that as well when we're thinking about, okay, KYC and non-KYC and so on. Um, I For think sure. it's one of, yeah. And, and going into calling back to uh, what we were talking about before about like some seriously nefarious use cases, there's no doubt that KYC AML reduces that stuff as well. And so that is a good thing. Um, uh, you know, obviously I understand that there's a lot of problems with the these all this red tape just to make an, a transaction, but um, you know, that's why it does have to be a balance. And, and um, you know, Ray and also local Bitcoins, both of both Paxful and local Bitcoins have said that adding in this stuff has cleaned up the activity on their platform and made it a safer environment for the good users, the, you know, on the platform. So uh, I'm not I'm not trying to shill for the regulatory agencies whatsoever, but, um, you know, there's there's a trade off to everything. So, yeah. Also, another really fascinating thing is this concept of all-time high in denominated in a foreign currency. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So um, the way that Paxful and local Bitcoins release their data, they uh, as of right now, they don't release country-level data. Like, um, honestly, a lot of the time, they don't even know what country their unverified users are in. They, they have IP checks and things of that nature, but that can only go so far. Um, so what the data we do have is what currency, um, what currency was being used in a given trade. And so, yeah, right now, uh, in peer to peer markets, uh, there are specific regions, um, West Africa, East Africa, India, uh, Latin America last year, and they've had a strong uh, bump up this year as well. But in these developing markets, in these places with known monetary restrictions, you're seeing all-time highs. And it's a great validation of, of the idea of Bitcoin in that uh, Bitcoin is an extremely attractive use case, um, or I should say an increasingly attractive use case um, in these places that have a high amount of restriction. Right. And uh, as I understand, the typical story that we have seen with all-time high in a foreign currency is usually it's an indicator that that government is trying to forcefully set the price of their money so lower so so what we're seeing is kind of like the black market real price for that money is going like even lower so to speak so then in bitcoin you can sort of see what the real price is it, sort of like the street price though it's not necessarily the real price but there's kind of yeah, a the difference there price. that's a good way to put it and yes it is true and I have this measurement on my website where uh, I actually track the percentage. Um, I track how much uh, Bitcoin trades at against various currencies. And it is reflective of an unofficial exchange rate or a black market exchange rate or a street exchange rate, whatever you want to call it. It is reflective of that. And so when you see this street exchange rate start diverging from the official exchange rate, it is an indicator that potentially things are falling apart in that country or that they are 
laying on new restrictions or things of that nature. So yes, it's it's really cool uh, to have the data and to see it play out like that. And in my Argentina article, I, I even lined up volume spikes with particular uh, events related to imposition of new capital controls or economic events and things of that nature. You can actually see Bitcoin volume spike when certain things happen in the real world. And it's really uh, a compelling argument about the proposition of Bitcoin. Right. And I think it's one of those things where the more governments try to clamp down, the more people will just learn about Bitcoin. And then typically once people get into Bitcoin and they're holding Bitcoin and then they've profited from it, they don't really want to leave, right? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, the technical literacy of, of people all around the world is only increasing and their access to the Internet is only increasing. So this is something that um, is not going to go away. And in fact, it's only going to get worse from the perspective of these governments. Uh, they're, they're, I like to say that, you know, these governments, they, they build walled gardens uh, in, in their country, monetarily speaking. They make all these rules about what people can and can't do with money in their country. And Bitcoin and the Internet are just like poking holes in these walls and, um, you know, allowing people to just completely disregard this type of stuff. So That's really cool. Um, and, and Matt, I know you're doing a little bit of work with Paxful and the Open Money Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Paxful, um, I've been bugging them for a couple of years. I think I showed up to their off it was uh i showed up to their office a few years ago they had no idea who i was and i just i said hey i'm looking at your data and uh tell me tell me all about what you guys are doing and all that stuff um but over time they kind of uh, warmed up to me and <clears throat> um so they've read my articles and they like they find um not only um uh interesting statements about the um I'm kind of good marketing for Bitcoin, as it were, but uh, I'm also finding interesting like business intelligence for them as a company where I, I can, um, they told me that, wow, we had no idea that Latin America was such a booming market or that Venezuela was the crux of Latin American volume um, until we read your article. So they're giving me a, a sponsorship to write these articles. And I'm also kind of helping them um, because I'm, on the ground with the users, I, I help them understand the use cases more and uh, such that they can build products that uh, make these use cases and user experiences a lot easier. Um, with Open Money Initiative, um, I'm not officially a part of the Open Money Initiative. I, I know Alejandro Machado there uh, pretty well. I've had many conversations with him and we always trade intel on, on the market in Venezuela. And so I just um, I did a, an article under their uh, under their handle uh, because I think they do good work and and um, uh, yeah I, I wanted them to have exposure and also uh, for me to get exposure from from their uh, current standing so yep awesome um, also just check now if anyone in the chat has any questions for Matt um, and I suppose just while we're waiting Matt uh, do you have any tips for people who want to do their own data analysis? Oh man, yeah. I would say um, uh, start start. Uh, when I learn computer science, I'm not good in the classroom where they're they're teaching you these abstract concepts. And when I was in college, you know, I think my semester project was building a fake bank account. And and uh, so 
when I learn, I like to have um, real th real problems that I'm working on. So find a data set that you're really interested in and start and think of a, a solution or think of some sort of goal. Um, and the internet is like, you know, everyone complains about the cost of education nowadays, but uh, knowledge is free. So you can go on the internet on YouTube and you can watch every video known to mankind about learning how to do data analysis. And so you can truly teach yourself. Um, I would also recommend the, the boot camps um, for people who are not like perfectly motivated and I'm not one of those people. Uh, when you go to a boot camp, you get a rigorous schedule where they kind of put you in a competitive environment and you they force you to, to study 10, 10, 12, 15 hours a day and you learn really fast that way too. So, yep. Great. Uh, and any tips in terms of uh, pitfalls when assessing Bitcoin data and Bitcoin volume. Are there any tips uh, on that side for listeners who want to do their own Bitcoin analysis? Um, I don't know. There's there's millions of pitfalls you can make. Um, you just have to really have the domain knowledge of the space and you have to know, um, you have to be open to the idea that your original answer is totally wrong. And that happens to me routinely where I think something's happening in this way. And then I talk to somebody and they explain, explain it to me in a way where it was the complete opposite. So I guess just be open to that possibility and um, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, look, I think that's just about it. So I'll just uh, put up on the screen right now, just for anyone who's uh, viewing, go to usefultulips.org. Uh, Matt, is there anywhere else you'd like people to find you online? Yeah. So if you go to the website, you can see um, my Medium articles are embedded uh, in the center. And then on the right, you can see my Twitter handle. So you can follow me on Twitter. I regularly make tweets there as well. And then on the left-hand side is where you can actually go in and look at volume charts in, in different parts of the world. So, uh, yeah, for example, you can see that um, uh, in, I have a heat map of, you know, if the volumes are increasing or decreasing in certain regions. And then when you scroll down, you can actually drill down on particular regions and even particular countries and currencies. So it's all really cool stuff. Uh, if you're like an uh, economics student, this is, I believe, a treasure trove of interesting stuff. So, Yeah. Actually, just one last question while we're here on this. Uh, one thing that I find interesting when I was looking through this data earlier as well is most people are used to thinking, oh, Bitcoin, didn't that thing die back in 2017? But funnily enough, we're actually seeing more volume now in certain continents than we did back in 2017. So Latin America and Africa actually have much more volume. And you can see that on usefultulips.org on the combined world page. Yeah, exactly. And so it kind of tells you that there might be something to Bitcoin outside of speculation. <laughs> People might be using it for reasons besides speculation. And that's kind of the argument that I try to make. Fantastic. All right. Well, look, I think that's pretty much it for this one. So thank you again for joining me, Matt. Thank you, Stefan. Thanks. Um, and just for listeners, you can subscribe at stefanlevera.com and there'll be show notes there. You can get the, all the links and I will get a transcript for this up in a couple of days. So that's it from us. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you in the Citadels.